land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment, or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. This is the Australian Property Podcast's Two Cents segment, where we're going to take a plain English look at the big three property news stories of the week. I'm joined by the king of mortgage broking, Chris Bates. Hello, Chris. Pete, love chatting. And uh, first episode we've done, and thanks for listening to... um, the podcast. I've been wanting to do these episodes for for years, um, and in particular with you because you're on the, you care about the same things I care about. You're following the news, you're tracking all the data. It's like we're two peas in a pod. So this is going to be exciting um, for us to produce each week and um, for our listeners to listen to at seven a.m. on a Sunday. Yes, yeah, so that's right. So every weekend, Sunday at seven a.m., this will land in your inbox, and we'll be talking about the big three news stories of the week because there's always doom and gloom and shocking headlines in the media these days, such is the nature of the beast. Um, So this week, look, the three big news stories we're going to look at, firstly, the New South Wales election results and what that means for the housing market. And secondly, we're going to talk a little bit about the global banking crisis, which has been attracting a few headlines over recent weeks and what it might mean for Australia or what it might not mean for Australia. Mm. And then finally, we're going to look at um, the Four Corners episode on the real estate industry. Uh, They tend to do these biannual exposés on the real estate industry and all of the related ills. So we'll talk a bit about that too. And these are obviously the big events that the media has been talking about. Before we get on to that, Chris, what have you been working on this week? Well, um, 
I mean, it's been a good week. We actually won Broker of the Year um, at the Better Business Awards, which is one of the big four awards that um, brokers probably strive towards. It was un- We weren't expecting it. There was some top talent um, in the brokers we were competing against, so we were a bit shocked. But um, that was a great win for our team to sort of for our success. Um, obviously, launching this podcast is a massive moment for us as well, so super excited to be launching this. And um yeah, outside work, it's 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 dad life. I've got two, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I'm having a three-year-old birthday party in the park this weekend. So um, that's about as exciting as my Saturday morning's going to be. Um, but, yeah, lots always happening, Pete. Uh, dad life and running the business. <laughs> well, congrats on the award. Uh, richly deserved. And, yes, I feel your pain. I've been through the three-year-old birthday parties. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, with a six- and an eight-year-old, it's mainly... Uh, golf and surfing lessons these days, but uh, or basically just a, a human taxi driver these days for the, for yeah. the youngsters. So look, let's. What, um, else you, what have you been working on yourself? What's um what's happening? Well, yes. Uh, well, I guess I've been working with some clients now for a number of weeks who are just readying themselves to buy property. I, I think the the general theme has been people have been very nervous. They're just waiting to see the bottom of the market. But I think now with some of the inflation figures softening and some of the media headlines switching from mm. doom and gloom to a more positive outlook and i guess probably we'll see price increases reported for march for the first time in a while um so the people are getting ready to pull the trigger now yeah um which is good and yes uh, apart from that just um otherwise being uh, pulled left and right by children so uh, yeah look, let's um let's jump into this week's three big news stories or big topics so look a few people wrote in and asked about the New South Wales election, uh, because um, both parties, uh, the incumbent uh, Liberal Party under Don Perrottet had the existing uh, sort of policies and then Labor was campaigning on different policies and in the end Labor won at a canter. And I think housing was kind of front and centre for this election because there's a real shortage of properties in uh, Sydney and New South Wales, particularly in the rental market. And um, in the end, it wasn't even close, was it, Chris? Uh, Labor won pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I, I like to see what the money's doing, the odds. Not that I do any betting out, uh, you know, on sport or anything, but I like to see what the odds were. And, um, you know, the, the odds got it wrong at Brexit. They got it wrong on Trump. They've got it wrong on the le- the Lib Labor federal election back in 2019. Um, so, you know, you can't bet on them. But, I mean, the, uh, Liberal, uh, the Labor Party were like $1.10, I think, the night before. Um, and you can see that they sort of, like you say, came home with a cancer. I think the issue that we, with the property market, is a lot of first home buyers were super excited, as they should have been, with Peritet um, basically brought in a, up to 1.5 million with no stamp, uh, no stamp duty and an annual land tax. And it was a no brainer. Like, unless you held that property for 20, 30 years, you would have been better off paying this land tax. And a lot of first home buyers only owned their properties for five to 10 years till they stepping stone into something else, right? So it was a, and at the deposit they needed was only 10%, not 15%, for example. So it was a huge benefit. And the limit on it at 1.5 was actually really generous. And, and you know, that doesn't align with Labor sort of philosophy. And so that he sort of got rushed that through, you know, September, October last year. And even though there was this election in March this year, and um, I think it's going to get repealed in the next few weeks. And so there was this real window where, you know, some first-time buyers have been able to take advantage of that policy, but I don't think it's going to be sticking around for long. 
No, so Labour effectively promised to abolish stamp duty for first home buyers, but only on properties up to $800,000 and then some concessional stamp duty rates uh, up to $1 million. So, yes, you're right, it's a change to what has been in place uh, and it wasn't in place for very long, actually. So uh, Mm. uh, one of the challenges, of course, with housing policy these days, they're changing every five minutes. Um, We see much of the same up in Queensland. Um, so, yes, there will still be some opportunities for first home buyers, but I think generally it will be uh, in the lower price points uh, where most of the activity will be happening. Um, previously, very generous uh, stamp duty uh, uh, sort of exemption up to 1.5 million. Well, that's going to go now by the looks of it. Um, I think some of the other policies that uh, Labour have promised to put into place are boost to social housing supply, which is desperately needed. Governments haven't really been building social housing now for decades it's uh, just an ever diminishing circle um so that's a good a good thing to see and much needed i think um, a lot of the other policies um sort of a streamlining of red tape and so on i mean these get taken to every election most of the other stuff was really related to uh, the rental market and just making uh, sort of tenant rights a bit stronger um so there'll be a rental commissioner to look into uh, making renting fairer uh, there'll be some bans on secret rent bidding. And I think as well, we'll see some changes for landlords in terms of uh, requests for having pets and things like that, and also uh, changes to portable bonds. So uh, there's a lot of sort of bits and pieces rules that will change in the rental market, uh, but there's no quick and easy fix at the moment. And uh, we've got immigration running at record highs and um, real handbrake on lending. So it's not a good mix really for the rental market overall, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. We need uh, to give uh, provide more rental housing. You need more investors to enter the market, right? And it's been a, a gradual war on investors all the way back sort of to 2015, 2016. And, um, you know, especially in the last 12 months, um, investors have been able to borrow a lot less money to get into the market. Plus, they don't want to when there's uncertainty and um, around rates and interest only. And so they're more likely to want to just focus on paying their home down than buying another investment property, etc. But ultimately, to solve a rental crisis, you need to create more accommodation. And the only way to do that is through, you know, things like build to rent, which they're trying to do with um, super funds, but that's a real long-term play. You can't all of a sudden produce 100,000 um, properties on the market. It takes many years. So really you need investors in the market, um, you know, buying properties and then creating new tenancies. But we've seen a gradual decrease in that. And all the new tenant rights, I mean, I'm all for, you know, protecting rental um, occupants more and more, you know, being uh, animal lover and if we can encourage things like that so transferable bonds and um etc and there's no grounds um sort of uh kicking people out of properties the rules around getting people out it's pretty relaxed um so i think you know all those things are good i mean ultimately the stamp duty change is it was 650 you know prior to the liberal changing it up to 1.5 million to go from stamp duty to land tax, um, you could borrow up to buy up to six fifty without any stamp duty. So they have increased it a little bit to what the offer was last year. Um, and you know, if you are looking to, you know, buy New South Wales under eight hundred, you have got some good options. You know, you can definitely get into a good two bed. You could maybe look in the housing markets in Central Coast or Wollongong or or Newcastle. But it doesn't so much really um, solve the problem in New South Wales. It's really the Sydney housing market is the real challenging one. Um, Hence why the Liberals went up to 1.5. So 
Um, but, you know, you've still got this government 5% deposit home loans as well, which will refresh in a few months' time in July. And so with no stamp duty and if you could get a 5% deposit with the government scheme, um, it really creates an opportunity for those first-home buyers that are, you know, got great incomes, they're saving, and they really want to enter the market um, as long as they buy a quality asset, which you'll learn on this podcast. Yes, I think, um, yes, the big picture is that, look, maybe in three years' time, we'll start to see some of these big institutional investors actually bringing uh, build-to-rent properties onto the market. So these will be big apartment towers where people can sign up for long-term leases. And instead of having uh, lots of private landlords owning those units, it will be one institutional landlord like a super fund or another investor uh, from the corporate background. Um, but that will probably take three years. There's a lot of money going into that sector, but you can't build this stuff overnight. So I think the big picture is we're going to see a very tight rental market for the next year or two until there'll be some respite when we start to see some new supply. I noticed in uh, Queensland this week, uh, they seem to have a new idea every week. Uh, but the latest proposal is that landlords can only increase rents once per year, which Okay, I guess it, these are little tweaks to the market, but in theory, uh, landlord will just increase the rent annually by a bit more. So mm. I'm not really sure what uh, difference that's going to make. Maybe a little bit of difference at the margin. So I think overall, Chris, the, the sort of the message is, um, well, there's a real shortage of housing in Sydney and New South Wales. Um, rental market is just getting tighter by the month at the moment and probably not much respite on the horizon because we're bringing in all these new migrants to tackle the labour shortages. Yeah, and the problem with rental stress is it's definitely uh, stressful when you've got to leave a tenancy. You know, there might not be an option if you can't, uh, your rental history is not ideal or you just so much competition. You always get pushed to the bottom of the pile and homelessness. And there's so many things that come down the line from this problem. What it also does is it forces people to want to buy. Um, so it actually, because they say, well, look, I just don't want to go in the rental market again. You know, I'd rather get into the market and buy. And so I think this is one of the, the tailwinds behind the recovery in the property market that we'll see. The tight rental market will force people, even under higher interest rates, to go, well, maybe I should enter the buyer pool. You know, maybe I don't want to rent again. And um, obviously only if they can afford to, but I think that's a, it's definitely a driver. If the rental market's really easy, well, you go, well, that's fine. I'll just go rent something. Rent it cheap. It's easy. I can, but if it's hard, then you're more likely to say, I want to solve this problem with security and having my own place. Um, so what was it? Let's go on to the second story, Pete. I mean, we were all a bit shocked a few weeks ago um, when we heard about Silicon Valley Bank. Um, then we were, I was even more shocked when Credit Suisse got bought by UBS at a, at a bargain, if you think about the name, Credit Suisse is like a Goliath in the financial world. Um, and then we've had other banks, you know, under a bit of pressure as well. Like, you know, people have been targeting Deutsche Bank and other places. So let's give our listeners a real, I guess, overview of what's actually happened and what does that context mean for the Australian property investor and the Australian tax resident? Yeah, let's look at this. Um, let's take a plain English approach to this. Um I mean, as you said, there's been headlines practically daily over the past few weeks, but the average person really hasn't got that much time to be reading one article about banking crises, let alone one every day or multiple every day. Um, so look, I guess um, a lot of this started, well, if you rewind the clock a little bit, we had interest rates were basically stuck at zero through the pandemic. And then as inflation started to take off around the world, as everywhere reopened, suddenly we started to see uh, the Federal Reserve 
which is the central bank in the US starting to hike interest rates. And they often have this um, sort of phrase that um, central banks will uh, keep hiking interest rates until something breaks. And it does seem to be the case that, um, well, that's more or less what happened. So um, the first uh, sort of major news story, as you mentioned, was a bank um, in the US called Silicon Valley Bank, uh, I guess fairly self-explanatory name. And there was a bit of um, sort of uh, where you could see there was some stress in financial markets and people were getting quite worried uh, that the bank had sort of mismanaged its risk. They tied up a lot of money in investments that weren't um, necessarily as liquid as they needed to be. And there's effectively an old-fashioned run on the bank once mm. people started getting worried about whether they could get their deposits out. And then, of course, on social media these days, there was people uh, effectively shouting fire in a crowded theatre and people basically just all rushed to get their money out. Now, mm. as the name implies, a lot of the uh, people who had deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were startup businesses, um, such as the nature of Silicon Valley. And uh, with people trying to withdraw over $40 billion of deposits in a single day, uh, well, that's lights out for a bank. They can't, <laughs> they can't come up with that much money that quickly. And we saw a couple of other banks going down in the same, uh, within a week, uh, a couple of others in the US. And as you mentioned, a lot of those sort of fears then sort of rumbled around into Europe. Um, Credit Suisse um, had had a, a number of scandals over recent years in terms of money laundering and oh, goodness knows what else, espionage. It, it, Credit Suisse was already beaten down and I guess uh, the, the latest crises didn't happen. I think the sort of the bigger question is, and things have certainly seemed to have calmed down a bit over the past week, uh, but what does it actually mean for Australia? I guess we read about all this stuff overseas, but what we want to know is, you know, what does it mean down under? So I guess here, Chris, we've got effectively the four big pillars of the banking system plus Macquarie Bank these days. And these mm. are, I guess, what you call too big to fail institutions that are effectively backed by the government. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, they've all come out this week. There's been another stress test, I believe, from APA on, um, you know, even if interest rates went up, how would they handle it? You know, and I think all the banks have come out and shown their strength in terms of their balance book. And, you know, there's been lots of updates to sort of banking, um, you know, minimums they have to hold on deposits and, you know, stress testing the banks. So I don't think we've got that same liquidity issue than a lot of these smaller banks, I guess, in the US did where they had, yeah, growing deposits um, and then potentially people are willing to rush to the exits much quicker than they would be if it was a one of the big Goliaths in Australia. I mean, from my understanding, no one has actually lost any money. There's The bank's assets have all been supported and the what we've also saw is the governments are all around the world go and support the banking system with, you know, unbelievable liquidity, like, um, you know, which is I think they were allowed to borrow against their bond books and, and things like that. So, yeah, it, it's, I think at the moment it's just created a little bit of concern around the, the banking system and the access to credit, I guess. The access to credit drives our economies and um, we've seen the, the, the expectations around where interest rates will go really flip. I mean, from my understanding, you were looking at maybe the RBA was going to go well over four just a few weeks ago. And now now in the AFR today, um, you know, it's a 50-50 chance if RBA is going to increase next week. Um, I think the even market thinks it's even much higher than that. You know, there's a highly, very 90% chance that they're not going to increase. So, um, yeah, we've seen that real, I think that's part of the overall story, the slower growth around the world, slower credit growth, um, 
less risk taking. That's going to lead to you know lower rates potentially, and maybe the inflation genie's back in the bottle. I mean, it's probably not a bad time to mention some of the inflation figures that came out today, Pete. Um, they're looking promising to where we've been. Yeah, I think actually you touched on the key point there, Chris, and that is during the global financial crisis, there were a couple of enormous banking institutions that were basically allowed to fail. And um, I guess the world learned pretty quickly that with the way that everything is so intertwined these days, that if you let banks go under, the contagion effect is enormous. So we ended up with a very deep and scary recession, uh, not so much in Australia, but certainly globally. I think since the financial crisis, well, firstly, Australia's banks are much better capitalised, mm. as you mentioned. We have insurance for deposits, uh, so people aren't so inclined to rush for the exits. And I think there's just more generally, central banks are much more on the front foot. If there's any sign of stress, uh, the liquidity is provided and um, effectively uh, deposits are backstopped and guaranteed and anything will be done to, to stop a repeat of the global financial crisis. And I think the other thing is that, look, Australia's banks, their main exposure is more so to home loans rather than commercial properties or small businesses, uh, such as we saw in the US. So, of course, the Reserve Bank is watching for signs of mortgage stress, but actually that we're coming off 20-year lows there. I think the key point, as you said, is, well, what happens now to interest rates? And, yeah, I think, as you mentioned, actually the inflation figures that were released uh, today as we record showed uh, headline inflation slowing from 7.4% to 6.8%, so a much bigger drop than was expected. Uh, so I think it's fairly likely now that the Reserve Bank will... Uh, take a pause, take stock of what's happening, uh, maybe see where things are at in a month or two. And that's really good news for borrowers because, uh, of course, we've had 10 interest rate hikes in a row. And um, that does cause some stress for some borrowers. So um, hopefully uh, we're getting close to the peak if we're not already at the peak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're right. The, the banking system is a lot of the assets are the properties that they gen, they own. You know I mean, they've got mortgages on them, a lot of them. Um, and it's how the how do those mortgages stack up under higher interest rates. And we'll do it in another episode, talk around the, the fixed rate cliff and what that really is and really where the risks are. I think there'll be stories on that um, every week. So let's go to the final story here, Pete. Um I mean, the Four Corners um, came out. That's a, I do love the show, to be honest, and I do like to to watch it. But, you know, there was an episode on the real estate market last night. It was called Agents of Influence. Um, what was your thoughts when you were watching it? And, uh, yeah, what were your takeaways? Uh, I must confess I didn't watch the whole thing. I, um, I've uh, periodically been invited to appear on uh, Four Corners and 60 Minutes and all these other shows. And I've, I've done it once or twice, but... Uh, I think I've um, served my penance, and I don't think I'll be doing it again. I think look, there were two main themes. One was underquoting um, in the housing market. So we'll do a little explainer on yeah. what that is and what it means. And the other thing was, I think, just um, uh, undisclosed commissions in the industry, which is uh, variously has been a problem for well, for decades now. So uh, let's start with the underquoting point. Um, so, well, firstly, Chris, let's explain... Um, let's say we've got an auction campaign in Sydney or Melbourne. What is underquoting and why is it an issue? Look, I think the issue here is that um, it, when you enter the market, especially for first home buyers, um, you're a bit naive and 
you know, you, you think of things uh, quite positively, right? And you start going to open homes and you start going down this path and you believe what's possible. Uh, what you think is possible is not actually possible, right? And it's really painful and it's a and it's a really challenging experience. So what ends up happening is, is that the real estate market is, is a sales industry, right? It's there to um, create competition on their their thing they're selling, which is the property. Um, and the way that they create competition is by setting a price lower than what it's going to sell at because the lower it is, the more buyers can afford it, right? Um, and you know, ultimately what they're trying to do is you know, the, create people uh, the incentive for people to make an offer and that's the feeling that they're going to lose it. So the competition you know, not only just increases the price, but also increases people to take action and urgency, et cetera. Um, and so even if they're not going to likely buy it, if even just rocking up at the auction, being there, is this creates social proof, et cetera. And so, um, you know, even if they the buyer's never going to buy it, they still want them to be there. So sometimes one of the ways to do that is to, is to lower the price of the property to create that competition. Now, the issue I think really is, is where that price guide is set way too low and, uh, you're basically just wasting buyer's time um, because the, the owner was never likely to sell a property anywhere near that price guide. And what ends up happening is when you're trying to sell a property, and you can probably explain this a bit better than me, Pete, but the agent will sort of agree a price with the vendor, what they're trying to achieve. Let's say it's a million dollars. And then they'll come up with a marketing campaign that may advertise it at, you know, 800, right? Um, and, you know, and then ultimately the, the vendor's reserves way over that, that um, the price that they've they've sort of advertised it to. So there's all this murkiness around price guides and and what ends up happening a lot of the time rife across the whole country because all the agents basically do it because if they don't do it, um, basically that the buyers think that everyone's under quoting and then they don't go to the property because they think it's out of their budget um, and then they've overpriced and it looks expensive so people don't go and look at it, et cetera. So unfortunately, the industry all sort of morphs into one, I believe, a little bit. Um, and then there's this constant underquoting problem um, that you know takes years for you to sort of figure out. Unfortunately, as buyers, yeah, look, it doesn't really happen so much in Queensland because they don't generally provide a price guide mm. in Queensland. But in Sydney or Melbourne, if there's let's say there's a property listed in uh, Paddington with a price guide of 1.8 million or whatever the case may be, I think you know once you've been in the industry for a while, you realise that property is not going to sell on auction day for 1.8. It's a, it's almost like a teaser price to get people interested. Now, people say, well, this is unethical. What real estate agents say is, well, how can they know uh, if there's a four to six week auction campaign, how can they know on day one where that property is going to land? And it's a bit of a nebulous issue. I mean, look, realistically, as you said, it's rife. Um, especially for auction campaigns, but look, nobody was convicted in New South Wales or Victoria last year. So I can't see, uh, having been through this debate many times over the years, I can't see that it's something that's going to change. So look, what does it mean for you as a buyer or as a seller? Well, I think it, I mean, you, there's no real substitute for just getting out there, yeah. following some properties, look at some auction campaigns, see where the price guide starts out, um, see where properties end up selling, under the hammer or in a post-auction negotiation. And I think the the thing to do when you're researching a property, there's no real substitute for just researching comparable sales in the same street, the same suburb. Um, I think price guides, if you start out with a price guide as a, a point to anchor to, you could end up being very disappointed because very often uh, the price guide is far below what the property ends up 
selling for. So I don't think it's something that's going to change, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. One of our tips for people buying is not really get too excited on the buy tab on real estate or domain. Look at the sold tab. And, you know, sometimes the prices are hidden there. The land registry um, has a sort of website in New South Wales where you can type in a suburb and everything that's settled, you can see the sale prices. And I think absolutely you in that sort of, uh, research sort of finding the property stage you definitely need to be building a list of properties that are similar to what you're looking to buy and get that real market knowledge because when you go to an open home what the price guide is it really doesn't matter to me to be honest what you really want to do is do your own research to give you enough idea what it's actually worth um, because that sometimes just leads you down a garden path and I, I think that's that's the problem with underquoting it anchors you you start thinking well I don't want to pay you know, in that scenario, you know, $2.2 million for that property at a price guide because it should only be 10% above that. What's, well, no, actually, it's probably worth 2.2 based on all these comparable sales, et cetera. Um, you know, there's a thing in news.com day, you're a buyer's agent in Sydney, you know, offered a price 400000 above the price guide as the first bid at an auction, um, you know, on the weekend in Stanmore. And, you know, it was 20% above the guide, basically. Um, and everyone's like, whoa, like, and they did, she didn't end up winning the property anyway, went for more than that. And so you know, if you're basing your number on the price guide there, you're being wiped out with the first bid. So I think underquoting is not going to change. I, um, I, I do think there needs to be some type of regulation around the serial underquoters who are 20, 30% under all the time. Um, but, you know, as a buyer, you can figure that out pretty quickly in a few months in the market to know who those serial offenders are. Um, the second big thing, I mean, you're right. I mean, I didn't really like the rah-rah of the real estate industry. It's, a, you know, the, the people driving the Lamborghinis and the real sales, boiler room culture, the Wolf of Wall Street, um, you know, not treating people as people. They're treating people as numbers and um, not being tr trusted advisors, doing everything they can just to get this deal. And and I think that mentality, is, I don't think, serves the real estate agent uh, industry well. Um, that was sort of highlighted in the four corners, I think, it should be moving more to a profession, and um, but that's something that Four Corners highlighted. The other thing was the industry sort of commissions. I mean, it is a sales industry, so there's a lot of commissions going around. Um, and I think it's, as long as they're sort of upfront and transparent, whether an agent refers it to another agent or whether there's a partnership with a buyer's agent or an agency, if it's all disclosed and everyone knows what the situation is, well, you can make your decisions based on those conflicts because they're being disclosed. The issue I think happens is they're not disclosed and people find out after and they think, well, hang on a sec, did that change your advice? Did I get the best advice from you or did I just fall into your trap to get your commission? And I think that was sort of exposed a little bit um, and asked a lot of questions there. Oh, yeah, I think one of the biggest um, issues in the real estate industry for years and years now has been uh, advisors recommending that people buy an off-the-plan um, yeah. apartments or a house and land package uh, but ostensibly they're making that recommendation because they're taking a six to eight percent commission from the developer and uh, i mean very often that's proven to be a red flag um you know th there's um what 11 million dwellings in australia why do you have to buy this specific property that the advisor can get a commission on um yeah because uh, and in that sense the advice can be very uh self interested um, and that's that's often been a red flag i think some of the grayer areas highlighted in the uh, four corners uh, episode was yeah where there's uh, maybe a, a commission between industry participants and it's not uh, transparent and it's yeah. not properly disclosed and that's obviously not ideal i think um, there's a bit of talk about uh, the roles of buyers agents and 
know, somebody who's been a buyer's agent myself over a dozen years or more. I mean, what can a consumer do? I mean, firstly, look for experience. Um, industry affiliations tend to be a good thing, although um, there are, you know, there's multiple industries that people, uh, affiliates, um, affiliations that people join. There's Reba, uh, there's Pippa, uh, there's Pika. So there's quite a few uh, that people join, as well as the uh, the State Real Estate Institute. Um, but industry affiliations tend to be a good sign. You're really looking for somebody with strong ethics and a strong reputation. I think it's quite hard sometimes for consumers uh, because everybody seems to have five-star reviews out there these days. So, um, you know, some word-of-mouth referrals might be a good thing. Um, but like every industry, there's good and bad operators. And um, usually, um, you know, if you look for somebody with good industry experience, that tends to be a good sign as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll do a whole topic on, you know, how to pick a great buyer's agent and, and what you need to do there. But I think this was just sort of raised some red flags around, you know, the conflicts that may exist in the buyer's agency in the real estate world. And um, I think it more important, the more you understand these, you can get a better result with a buyer's agent because you pick the better one and also you know to avoid certain conflicts. So that's our three stories for for this week. Um, we'll be doing this obviously every week. If you've got any stories you want us to cover that you think, oh, wow, I'd love for Pete and Chris to do that this week, send them through. Um, anything else we should finish up on, Pete? No, I think that's it. I mean, the I think the New South Wales... Um, election result yes there'll be a few bits and pieces changes but it's largely pushing deck chairs around and i think the rental market is going to be extremely tight uh, particularly in sydney and melbourne over the next year or two i think uh, the global banking crisis well it hasn't reached star shores yet um uh, i think commonwealth bank is trading at 96 dollars a share so obviously yeah <laughs> uh, financial markets aren't too stressed over here just yet um but something to watch in terms of mortgage arrears and um, yes, the underquoting issue, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So it's just something for buyers to be aware of. And um, uh, let's hope uh, we get uh, some favorable news on inflation and interest rates over the next month or two. But things seem to be moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think we'll have another chat about that on another episode around where is the market and, um, you know, in different markets uh, performing at different rates. So I think we'll, we'll leave that one for next week. Great to chat with you, Pete. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Now, we do encourage everybody to send us your property questions. Uh, so there's a link in the show notes, or even if you just want to say good day. And if you want to uh, contact Chris at Wealthful, uh, Chris is a maestro at answering all of your mortgage questions. So do get in contact if you've got any questions on borrowing, because that's uh, Chris's area of expertise. Yeah, and if you want this a bit more on a daily basis, um, you know, I always read Pete's blog every day. Um and so you're going to get all these snippets over a week. And, um, yeah, we pick a few of those stories out for this episode. So um, we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks, Chris. Look forward to it. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. 
That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax, or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.